Take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. And if you were with us last week, we began looking at this very important uh, passage that is really foundational to who we are as a church and I think who every church should be. Ephesians chapter 4 starting in verse 11 and going through verse 16. Let me just reread this text and we'll get back into it this morning together. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. Paul writing to the church in Ephesus, he said, And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith, And of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we're no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Father, again, we come before you and just want to say thank you for your word, for leaving it to us, for us, that we might study it and uh, understand it and apply it. Well, we need your help by your spirit today to uh, have insight into what Paul was saying here and how it relates and applies to our church, not just the church in Ephesus, but to here at Lakeside in the 21st century. And so would you help us to make those connections, um, Lord, that we might live out this text for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week, as I was uh, standing by the front door, um, a woman who recently started coming to our church came up to me on her way out and just shook my hand and said, you know, I think I'm going to grow at this church. And I thought whether she realized it or not, she basically just summarized this passage, everything that Paul was saying about church growth in this classic uh, text. In an age where a church's success is typically judged by how many people are attending the church, Paul's words come as a refreshing reminder to us that the true measure of a church's success is not how many people are coming, but how much people are becoming like Christ. That's a little tagline we have on the bottom of the notes this morning. If you didn't get a copy in the back, go ahead and just raise your hand. We'll get somebody to give, give you a copy of these, but these are helpful uh, to have a little outline on the front side that kind of you can follow along with the sermon. Uh, but on the back, I think, is the most important part of that, and that is uh, where we provide some application questions uh, for you to use in your quiet time. Uh, maybe Sunday afternoon uh, during lunch, you could t- work through some of these questions with your family. Uh, Some of you uh, have grow groups that uh, focus on sermon application, and that's what this is ultimately designed for, uh, for you to have something to to, to go through together as a small group, as a grow group. But please make use of those questions, particularly today's questions. Uh, They they just, as I was writing them out, they just seemed particularly practical, more practical than, than normal even. 
And I, I work really hard to make those questions as practical as possible so no one can walk away from a sermon here at Lakeside Bible Church and go, so what? Um, well, there's the so what. If you're wondering what the so what of the sermon is, please read through those questions after this, this afternoon, this evening, next, you know, during this next week. Uh, talk about them with your small group, your family, your wife, your husband, your kids. Uh, make good use of those. But this is uh, what, we're, what we're seeing here in, in Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4 is, is biblical church growth. People growing and maturing in their relationship with Christ so that they become an accurate reflection of Him in their words, in their actions, and in their attitudes when they are not only here at church, but also when we're out in the world. Interesting, this week I had one of uh, the young gals in our church who serves as a waitress in a, in a local restaurant. She just mentioned to me what a huge contrast it was uh, serving a large group of people from our church and serving a large group of people from another local church. And, and she was just saying how it was a, a, like a night and day difference. And, and, and thankfully, uh, she was able to report that the people that were, were there from our church had been a great witness, a great testimony, had been nice and kind and generous and all those kinds of things. And unfortunately, that wasn't the same experience she had with the other church. Now, I'm sure we have people in our church who can be jerks at restaurants, okay? Uh, I'm sure there's got to be some of us, right, who can, who can be that at some points. But again, it's sad to me when, when people who go to church don't talk and act like Christ. Because it not only makes the church look bad, it makes Jesus look bad. This is Christ's church. He started it. And he has been sustaining it for over 2,000 years, and he's in the process of sanctifying the members of the church. Turn over just one page to chapter 5, Ephesians chapter 5, and we see here how Paul uses uh, Christ's relationship with the church uh, to exhort the husbands to love their wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now notice verse 26, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. That is Christ's goal for you. That is Christ's goal for me. That is Christ's goal for us. That we, we would be holy and blameless and perfectly conformed to Him. Christ's church exists to help people come to know Him and to grow to become like Him. So healthy church growth, as we're talking about here, involves both numerical growth and spiritual growth. Another way to look at it might be more and more people becoming more and more like Christ. That's biblical church growth. More and more people becoming more and more like Christ. And so in this passage, Paul explained here nine marks of a spiritually strong, healthy, mature church. And we started uh, last week by looking at the first two marks. The first one was gifted leaders in verse 11 where it says that he gave some as apostles and some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers. And so we talked about how God sovereignly and, and chronologically provided the church with gifted men to first establish the foundation of the church. That would be who? 
the apostles and prophets, right? To expand the church, that would be the evangelists, and then to edify the church, that would be the pastors and teachers. And so we talked about that once the foundation of the church was laid and the canon was completed, the role of the apostles and prophets was no longer needed, so their unique ministry ended. However, that doesn't mean we're, we're not left without the benefits of these two significant gifts to the church. We find them where? Right here. In the New Testament in particular, because everything they said and did is recorded here in the pages of Scripture. And Acts 2.42 says that the church was devoted to the apostles' teaching or the apostles' doctrine. And so now the task of evangelists and pastor teachers in our day and age is to explain and apply the teaching of the apostles and prophets. And I think this responsibility falls primarily on pastor teachers whose job it is to shepherd God's flock by lovingly leading them and faithfully feeding them. If you you ever wondered what I got paid for, okay, it's to, to, to feed you and love you. That's my job. My job is to feed you and to love you. And the day I stop doing that well is the day you need to look for another pastor. If I'm not feeding you well, I'm not loving you well, right? That's what a pastor does. That, that, that's, you know, and without, without a gifted, qualified shepherding team of pastors and teachers and elders, a church cannot and will not grow and develop the way God intends. I think one of the biggest hindrances to a church's growth is having ungifted, unqualified people in positions of leadership. In order for a church to have spiritually mature members, they must have spiritually mature leaders. It wasn't that hard, okay? In order for a church to have spiritually mature members, they must have spiritually mature leaders, right? Because the people become like the the leaders. And so you... First of all, the first mark of a, of a strong, healthy, spiritually mature church is, 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 is gifted leaders. Secondly, is equipped members. We said, verse 12, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. We talked about this idea of equipping is, is simply providing people with everything that they need to be useful in serving the Lord. That's what it means to equip. God never intended for, for us to come to church to just sit there, stand up, sing a song, listen, and leave. Okay, all of us should come to church every Sunday, every Wednesday when we're here to do two things, to worship and to work. To worship and to work. God wants all of us to be actively and aggressively involved in some kind of ministry to, to one another. He's given each of us a spiritual gift or, or gifts to serve a unique role in the body. And it's the job of the leadership team to help every church member discover and develop their gift or gift and use it to build up the body. That's what it means that he gave some as, as, a, as pastors and teachers for the purpose of equipping the saints for the work of service. And we said last week the two primary ways that that pastors and and elders equip believers to serve the Lord in various ministries is number one, by preaching to them, and number two is praying for them. And isn't that what the apostles said in Acts chapter 6, verse 4? Their priorities were what, what? Prayer and the ministry of the word. That's how they equip the body. 
We said the church really functions like a, like a pit crew, right? You're out there racing around the track all week and, and your tires are getting worn out and your, your gas is going low and your windshield's getting all messed up and dirty. And so you pull into the pit style, you pull into church on Sunday morning and, and, and we, we fix you up. We, we change out your tires, we'll put you, put you, give, you, give you new paws on the ground, you feel good and, 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 and tr- give you traction again and we, we, we fill up your gas tank, you get a fresh tank of gas, we clean your windshield so you can see clearly again and then we send you back out there and you zip around the track for another week. We talked about the, the, the Reformation concept of the priesthood of all believers, remember that? The priesthood of all believers. In other words, uh, the church got into this, this rut back in the 1500s, 1600s where, where the pastor was the only guy that did the work of the ministry. Everybody else just showed up and sat there and looked at the guy. While he read the Bible, nobody else had a Bible. He, he's the only one that had a Bible. He's the only one that read the Bible. He's the only one that took communion. They all watched him. That, that'd be kind of weird if you just kind of came here and watched me take communion. I'm going to take communion now, guys. Okay, watch me. You'd be like, this is really weird, right? But that's what was going on. And they, they lost the kind. And so Martin Luther and the other reformers brought them back to the scriptures and said, look at the Bible teaches the priesthood of all believers that, that, that there's not just one man who should be doing the work of the ministry. All of us should be doing the work of the ministry. And so we need to have gifted leaders. We need to have equipped members. And, and really the remaining seven marks that we're going to look at this morning are the result of gifted men equipping the saints through prayer and the ministry of the word. And let's see how when, when a church has gifted leaders who are equipping their members and their members are serving faithfully alongside the pastors and elders and other leaders, uh, what is that going to look like? Uh, how does that flesh itself out? What is the result? What is the product, if you will? Uh, what are some other marks of a strong, healthy, spiritual, mature church? Number three is doctrinal unity. Doctrinal unity. Notice verse 13. It says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith. And so uh, the, the, the leaders equip the saints for the work of service so the body of Christ is built up until we all attain to the unity of the faith. That word attain uh, means to reach. It's a word that was used to describe a, a traveler arriving at some destination. And so we're, we're, the, the goal is to, to get somewhere. And what are we trying to attain? Where are we trying to go? Well, we're trying to achieve or attain the unity of the faith, reaching a place where everyone agrees on the essential elements of the Christian faith. Notice back in verse 5, he, he talks about how there's one body, one spirit, just as you were called in one hope for your calling, one Lord, one what? Faith. You see that in verse 5? One faith. That word faith isn't just talking about belief in Jesus Christ. It's talking about the body of truth that one must believe in order to be saved. It's the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Jude chapter 3, or Jude verse 3, I should say. And so the point is this, that the Holy Spirit delivered doctrinal truth to the church through the inspired writings of the apostles, the apostles' doctrine, Acts 2.42. We already mentioned that earlier this morning. And so the early church recognized this basic set of doctrines that they studied, that they guarded, and that they passed on to others. And so as a, as a body of believers, like 
this body of believers systematically studies the apostles' doctrine, studies the scriptures together, uh, particularly in a verse-by-verse fashion, they get to the place where they believe all the same things about the Bible and God and Christ and the Holy Spirit and and sin and the gospel and salvation and sanctification and heaven and hell and homeschool. Just kidding, I thought I'd throw that one in there. Because to remind you that we're talking about essentials here, okay? Things that determine whether you go to heaven or hell. That's what we're talking about, right? Because at the same time, while a church is coming together in, in agreeing on what the scriptures teach about these vital issues, at the same time, they're developing the wisdom and the discernment to humbly and graciously defer to one another when it comes to to, to secondary non-salvific issues like whether you're pre-trib or mid-trib or post-trib or pre-mill or post-mill or ah-mill or whether you're a covenantalist or a dispensationalist or, uh, you know, uh, whether you homeschool or public school or private school or, you know, all these things that are secondary matters that at the end of the day don't matter. And so true unity is, is achieved within a church when, when they experience a oneness based on common doctrinal convictions. Personal convictions may vary, right? That's not the issue. It's doctrinal convictions that Paul's talking about here until we all attain to the unity of the faith. What brings us together here is what we believe about the Bible. Not what we believe about anything else, right? Um, that's what brings us together. Hopefully that's what, what drew you to this church, what was the connect point of this church. What was not because you m- met a whole bunch of people that have the same personal convictions that you have about secondary matters in life, but you came to this church and you go, you know, my heart resonates with the teaching of God's Word. That your church is committed to the Scriptures and, and sound doctrine, and, and that's what made my, that's what knit my heart to this church. And, and what people do with their kids and what people do for a living and, 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 and all those other things, you know, what, what people do on Friday nights with their free time, those are all secondary matters. And so we need to have doctrinal unity. That's the mark of a healthy church. Number four is conformity to Christ. Conformity to Christ. Notice, until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. And so this is something else that we need to attain, that we're uh, a destination that we're, 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 we're going towards that we want to get to someday. And what is that? That is the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. That expression there, the knowledge of the Son of God, in the Greek, it's the word epignosis, which is not just intellectual knowledge, but experiential knowledge. Back in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18, Paul prayed specifically for this, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know experientially, not just intellectually, but experientially, what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe. And so he's talking about knowing Christ, 
uh, not knowing about Christ, right? Because we know that being a Christian is not just knowing about Christ. There's a lot of people that know about Christ. doesn't mean they're a Christian. Being a Christian is knowing Christ in an intimate, personal way. It's sharing his likeness. It's becoming like him. I love Paul's testimony in Philippians chapter 3, verse 9. He says that he counted all things as loss to the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, count them but rubbish that I may gain Christ, and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes, which comes from God on the basis of faith, and here it is, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I might attain to the resurrection from the dead. It wasn't enough for Paul just to know some facts about Jesus. He wanted to know Jesus experientially. He wanted to be like Jesus in in every possible way. He wanted to share in his sufferings. He wanted to be conformed to his death. And that's what he's saying here in Ephesians 4 to the, to, the, to the church in Ephesus, that you would be a mature man. What does it mean to achieve the knowledge of the Son of God? It means you mature. You, you become a full-grown, completely developed individual or Christian. And we know that none of us are going to achieve perfection until we get to heaven. However, every believer is expected to pursue perfection. Matthew 5, verse 48, Jesus, who was the perfect reflection of the Father, he was God in human form, he said, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. In other words, be like God. Which is, by the way, why he came, because none of us could be like God by ourselves. And so he had to do it for us. And that's why we need to be clothed in his righteousness. But the, perf- the, the example is this. The, the, the point is this. Jesus Christ is the perfect standard that we're to measure ourselves by. Listen, stop comparing yourself to other Christians. Well, I'm better than they are. I'm not as bad as they are. Well, that's not the standard. Compare yourself to Christ. Sometimes we, we compare ourselves to each other because it makes us feel better about ourselves. <laughs> Because Christ is, the standard is just so high, right? Well, that's the standard. The standard is Christ. And so we should make it our goal to become as much like Christ as humanly possible while we're here on this earth, knowing that the moment that we see him, we will be made like him because we'll see him just as he is. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. And so Christ's likeness is synonymous with spiritual maturity. When we, you hear us talk a lot about spiritual maturity around you. You hear us talk a lot about Christ's likeness around you. It's, it's the same thing. Christ's likeness, spiritual maturity. Spiritual maturity looks like Christ. And the more like Christ we are, the more spiritually mature we are. That's what Paul said to the Colossians in, in, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 28. We proclaim him, Christ, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man, what does it say next, you remember? Complete or perfect in Christ. And so a a strong, healthy, spiritually mature church is conformed to the image of Christ. Well, there's a fifth mark. 
And we'll call that spiritual discernment. Spiritual discernment. And as we are maturing in our understanding of doctrine and we're becoming more unified in the faith and we're being more conformed to the image of Christ, as a result, verse 14, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness in deceitful scheming. Again, as we we, we grow and mature in our relationship with Christ, we will no longer be immature children who are easily swayed by false teachers and false doctrine. I think this verse is a scathing description of much of the church today. Wouldn't you agree? That were children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheme. It's interesting that he likens this to being like a child. And uh, one of the characteristics of children is that they're gullible. You can tell them anything and they'll believe you. It's easy to see, to deceive children or, or to trick children. And not only are they gullible, they're also fickle, right? They're interested in something just for a few minutes and then, then they're distracted and they're off to something else. And I think many Christians today are just like that. They're easily influenced by the latest book or, or novelty. They go from one fad to the other. They, they jump from one bandwagon to the other as if they were being blown and tossed around in every direction by winds and, and waves. It's the, the idea is being out in the open sea and, and, and there's just confusion. There's turmoil in your life. Why? Because they've never been trained to discern truth from error, and so they're easy prey for false teachers who intentionally lead people astray from the truth. It says they're tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men. That word trickery in the, in the Greek is the word where we get the word cube or dice. And so the idea here is, is, is dice playing, rolling the dice, and the dice are loaded. They're tricking you. They're ripping you off. They're deceiving you. And so they're disguising error to look like truth. And you know that's how false teachers are so effective is they mix in just enough truth to sound believable. Oh, well, that's true. Well, that may be true what they just said, but all that other stuff they said isn't true. Or they say a whole lot of things that are true, but they say one or two things that are really not true. And it's easy to be impressed with, with, with some people's passion and zeal or their, their apparent sincerity, but we need to develop the skill to recognize false teachers and false doctrine. John MacArthur has made this comment on this passage, and he, as you know, he's someone that God has used um, to help the church develop discernment over the years with uh, not only his sermons, but the many books he's written addressing some of the contemporary fads or issues that have taken the church by storm. And he's addressed those things in, in, from a biblical perspective and has been very helpful in, in, in helping people develop discernment. But this is what he said. He said, in the history of the church, no group of believers has fallen into more foolishness in the name of Christianity than as much of the church today. 
Despite our unprecedented education, sophistication, freedom, and access to God's Word and sound Christian teaching, it seems that every religious huckster can find a ready hearing and financial support from among God's people. The number of foolish, misdirected, corrupt, and even heretical leaders to whom many church members willingly give their money and allegiance is astounding and heartbreaking. And that's why it's so important that churches teach sound doctrine so that Christians won't be deceived by the many false teachers who are out there today. You need to be anchored, right? If this is the image of being out on the sea, being tossed to and fro all over the place, being thrown at the whim of of, of the next wave, you need to be anchored. And this is your anchor right here. You need to be anchored to the Word of God. And so you need to have spiritual discernment. A sixth mark of a strong, healthy, spiritually mature church is authenticity. Authenticity. Notice he says, verse 15, but speaking the truth in love. That's what we should be doing. We should be speaking the truth in love. Literally, what this phrase means is truthing. We need to be truthing one another. In other words, communicating truth through our lips and our lives. Why? Because in contrast to to false teachers who promote error and deception and hypocrisy, they, they say one thing and they do another, their lifestyles don't match up with their message necessarily. So our lives, he says, should be marked by truthfulness and integrity, or what I like to call authenticity. We should speak and deal and act truthfully with one another. We shouldn't be fake or hypocritical, but real, genuine, sincere, and honest. In fact, look down at verse 25. He's going to get around... He's going to come back to the same concept of speaking the truth in love. Verse 25, therefore, he says, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. The point is, why would you lie? Why would you be dishonest? Why would you be fake? Why would you be insincere or disingenuous with your brother or sister in Christ? Listen, beloved, we should never, ever have to guess or wonder where we really stand with one another. We should never have to feel awkward or weird around each other. If if that's the case, then someone is not being honest, someone's not being truthful. And so there should be conversations if there is any awkwardness or weirdness right? What should happen is somebody should be saying, hey, you know what? I need to be honest with you. You did something that offended me the other day. And you point that out to them in love and you give them an opportunity to make it right with you. Or you say, hey, I'm just wondering, have I done or said anything that's offended you? Because it just seems a little different, right? Between us. Those are good, healthy, truthing kinds of conversations, And some wrongly conclude in the church that if you really love someone, you're going to shield them from the truth because if they knew the truth, it might hurt them. 
Listen, if you truly love me, you're not going to tell me what you think I want to hear. You're going to tell me what I need to hear. Right? If you really love me, you're not going to tell me what, I, what you think I want to hear. You're going to tell me what I need to hear. And the same thing, if I really love you, I'm going to tell you what I think you need to hear, not what I think you want to hear. And I think one of the marks of a healthy church is that people have the maturity to lovingly confront one another and also receive loving confrontation themselves without getting offended. There's a great book, and if you don't have a copy of it, you need to get one. It's called Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands by Paul Tripp. A really foundational book for our counseling ministry here at Lakeside. But there's a section, there's a whole chapter on this phrase where he explains what does it mean to speak the truth in love. And he basically says this, that in order for a church to to, to be this kind of church, to, to have this healthy truth thing going on, there needs, there needs to be honesty and there needs to be humility. In other words, people have to be honest enough to say what needs to be said and people have to be humble enough to receive it. And, and can I just encourage you, don't, don't be that person that everyone kind of tiptoes around on eggshells when they're ever around you or have to say something to you because you're so overly sensitive uh, or, 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 or easily offended. It's interesting. I've found over the years that it seems like, to me, that those people who seem to get the most offended by somebody seeking to speak the truth and love to them, they're the ones that... That, that, that are never um, shy about speaking their own minds. And, and, and they have no problem confronting other people and telling other people what they think about their life. But, but, and the point is they can dish it out, but they can't take it. It shouldn't be that way. Listen, the one who tells you that you got some food stuck in your beard or your mustache, that's the person who really loves you, Right? The person who, who tells you that your fly's unzipped or your hair's out of place or the awkward thing like, okay, everybody sees it, but who wants to say? That's the person who really loves you, who really cares for you. Proverbs 27, verse 5, better is open rebuke than love that is concealed. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. Proverbs 28, 23, he who rebukes a man will afterward find more favor than he who flatters with his tongue. You ever thought about the difference between flattery and gossip? Gossip is saying something behind a person's back that you would never say to their face. Flattery is saying something to a person's face that you would never say behind their back. You just say stuff like, ah, yeah, yeah, and, 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 and you would never commend them to other people that way. You're flattering them. One of my favorite books is Lectures to My Students by C.H. Spurgeon. And Spurgeon had a college, a pastor's college, and he would gather all these young men and teach them how to be pastors, teach them how to be preachers. And just some sage wisdom throughout this, this book. And this is probably my favorite quote. Okay, maybe one of my favorite quotes uh, from this book. But listen to what Spurgeon said regarding this whole idea of speaking the truth in love. 
He says, I thank God I can say this, that there is no member of my church, no officer of the church, and no man in the world to whom I'm afraid to say before his face what I would say behind his back. I mean, can you say that? That there's not a person on this planet, right, that, that you would not be afraid to say to his face what you'd say behind his back. He says, under God, I owe my position in my church to the absence of all policy and the habit of saying what I mean. In other words, it's very typical in churches to play politics, right? And you, 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 you have a conversation over here about something, and then it's somehow when you get over here, it's different, and you say something different because you wanna, kinda, you're just playing politics. He says, I'll tell you what, there was an absence of all policy, he says, in the habit of saying what I mean. He says, the plan of making things pleasant all around, let's keep everybody happy, is a perilous as well as wicked one. If you say one thing to another man, or excuse me, if you say one thing to one man and another to another, they will one day compare notes and find you out, and they will be, then you will be despised. He says, above all things, avoid cowardice, for it makes men liars. Don't be a coward. Say what needs to be said. If you have anything that you feel you ought to say about a man, let the measure of what you say be this. In other words, this is how you determine what you should say about someone. Quote, how much dare I say to his face? You must not allow yourselves a word more in censure of any man living. In other words, if you're going to criticize someone, you better make sure you don't say anything to someone else that you wouldn't say to that guy's face or that woman's face. Now, that's a good rule of thumb, isn't it? Well, think about how, how healthy a, a, a body of believers would be that, that live by that principle, that I'm not going to say anything about you to anyone else that I wouldn't say to your face. Because unfortunately, what do, what do a lot of churches happen? Well, there's a lot, of a lot of stuff being said to a lot of people that would never be said to the person's face, right? This just makes for an unhealthy environment. He, Spurgeon ends this way. He says, if that be your rule, that I'm never going to criticize someone to someone else that I, and say something that I wouldn't say to their face, right? He says, if, if that be your rule, your courage will save you from a thousand difficulties and win you lasting respect. It'll save you from a thousand difficulties, right? And win you lasting respect. I'm so grateful that God put me in a church early on in ministry where they practiced this speaking the truth in love. And I had guys speaking into my life in a very honest, straightforward way, and they were sharing hard truths, thankfully, in a sensitive, loving way, but I tell you what, it made for a very dynamic atmosphere for spiritual growth when I have somebody sit me down and as often say, hey, Ken, I just want you to know you're prideful. It was like the first negative thing anybody ever said to me. All I ever heard growing up was, hey, boy, pat you on the back, you're going to be this, you're going to do this, you're going to be, right? And this guy sits me down and says, Ken, you know, I just want you to know I've observed that there's, you have a lot of pride in your life. I didn't like the guy right, right at that moment. I was like, well, who, who are you to tell me that, right? That was my initial reaction. 
But I praise God for that man today because he was the first one that ever loved me enough to tell me what I needed to hear, not just what I wanted to hear. And, and guess what? Once you see that, you're like, oh, yeah, you know, you're right. Uh, you begin to work on it. And then you can begin to grow and you can begin to change and become more humble. And so we need to be authentic. There needs to be an authenticity. That's the mark of a healthy, mature church. Number seven, there also needs to be submission to Christ's authority. There, need to be sum, there needs to be submission to Christ's authority. Notice verse 15, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. So again, we know Paul uh, regularly mentioned in his letters that Christ is the head of the church. Chapter one of this same book, verse 22, and he put all things in subjection under his feet. God put all things under subjection uh, to his feet, Christ's feet, under Christ's feet, uh, and gave him as head over all things to the church. Chapter 5, verse 23, the husband is the head of the wife as Christ also is the head of the church. Colossians chapter 1, verse 18, he is also the head of the body, the church. And so what is significant here about Paul likening Christ to the head? Well, the head is only the most important part of the body, right? Every part of the body is dependent on the head. It's the source of life and and nourishment and direction. It controls and rules the entire body. You can live without an arm. You can live without a leg, right? You can live live without some internal organs, but you can't live without your head haven't seen it yet. They haven't come up with a prosthetic for your head yet, okay? It just doesn't work. And so Jesus Christ, the point is, has absolute authority and control and rule over the church. Christ is in charge, not me and not the elders and not the other pastors. We're not in charge. Christ is in charge. However, at the same time, we know that the New Testament teaches that Christ mediates his rule through a plurality of godly men who serve as his under-shepherds, the pastors and the elders. And their job is to do what Christ wants them to do, not what they want to do or even what the congregation wants them to do. And there's some, I guess, just built into the American mindset, right, in our representative form of government where we elect people from our community to go represent us in, in Washington, right? Listen, the elders and the pastors here at Lakeside Bible Church don't represent you, they represent Christ. Now, I know some of you are going, oh, I'm not sure I like the sound of that, right? Kind of goes against the, the grain here. But listen, we're not here to represent you, we're here to represent Christ, doesn't mean we're insensitive to you or, or we don't care what you think or, you know, whatever. We're going to do what we want. It's not about us doing what we want. It's saying we want to do what Christ wants. Not what we want, not what you want. We want to do what Christ wants. And so we have the responsibility to submit our hearts, our minds, our wills to Christ and seek his will through prayer and the study of his word. And we're convinced that God has one will in any given situation, and that's why we as pastors and elders are committed to what's called the unanimity principle when it comes to decision-making. That, that in other words, we're, we're not going to make a decision to, to move forward in any direction in the life of this church unless we all agree. 
Unless we all believe as elders and pastors that this is God's will, that this is, lines up with his word. And I'll tell you what, that is the key to staying unified as a church. Because you know exactly what would happen, right, if the elders are, are faced with this major decision and, 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 and three of the elders think it's a great idea and two of them don't think it's such a great idea, but because we're Americans and it's the majority rules, three against two, we win, you guys have to go along with us, and so the decision is made, the decision is communicated, and then we, we announce the decision and then someone in the congregation says, well, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. And, and you just happened to go to one of the elders who also didn't think it was the best idea. And you say, hey, that's a really dumb idea. Why did you guys say, well, you know, uh, I didn't think that was the right thing to do either. Well, well how do you think your church is going to go then? You might as well, you just might as well kiss it goodbye. Because you're going to have factions and divisions and you're going to have a war and you're going to have a church split. And, and that's just how it's going to go. And so if we can't come to a consensus as elders after praying, after discussing, after studying God's word, after getting input from those involved in whatever decision is going to be made, then we just table it. We put it off until we know for sure that this is what God wants us to do. And oh, by the way, sometimes we might make a bad decision. But as one of my mentors said, the mark of a good leader is they make good second decisions. Because if you're out there making decisions as a leader, sometimes you've got to make judgment calls, and it's on the fly sometimes, and you make a decision, and even after you've maybe prayed about it and thought it through and discussed it, and you think you're making the right decision, and then after you, a while you evaluate, uh, well, how did that decision go? Did we accomplish the goals that we uh, wanted to accomplish, and did we do? Uh, not really. Well, maybe we need to go back and do something different. And so hopefully we've, we've modeled that, we've demonstrated that as elders, that it's not like, hey, it's our way or the highway, and we don't care if you like our decision, you know, just shut up and submit, and, you know. No, we appreciate input, and sometimes uh, you have brought input to us, members of, some of our members have brought input to us, and we're like, hey, you know what, that's valid, we appreciate that, we didn't think about that, or we didn't realize it might have had that big of an effect, and so let us rethink it, let's pray it through again, let's see if we want to reevaluate our decision. The point is this, that there ultimately needs to be a submission to Christ and His authority. What what does Christ want for His church? Not what do I want, not what do you want, not what does anybody else want. What what does Christ want? Number eight is, is, is the spirit of cooperation. Another mark of a of a healthy church is the spirit of cooperation. Notice verse 16. Again, this idea of the body that he's been hinting at. Throughout this text, he really comes into full focus now. From whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. This was one of Paul's favorite analogies of the church was the human body, and, and, and we know that in, in, in the human body, all the bones and organs and flesh of our bodies are connected together by sinews and ligaments and, and joints, and, and so God designed each part of our body to work together in perfect harmony with the other part of our body, every other part of the body, to cause us to grow strong and healthy. 
And, and each part performs a specific function that contributes to the growth of the whole body. And when one part doesn't do what it's supposed to do, then the whole body is affected. In the same way, when one of us doesn't do our job, right, the, the, everyone else suffers. What I do affects you, what you do affects me, what you do affects one another, right? We're, we're, we're vitally connected to, to one another. Colossians chapter 2, verse 19, Paul said this to the church in, in Colossae. He said, not holding, fast, not holding fast to the head from whom the entire body being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments grows with a growth which is from God. In other words, you can't manufacture growth. We, we shouldn't sit around as leaders here or ministry has and go, okay, what can we do to make this thing grow? How can we get it bigger and stronger and faster? Right? It, it will, if it's healthy, right? We've mentioned this last week. If it's healthy, it will inherently grow. And ultimately, who causes the growth? Is it your brainstorming meetings? It's your, no, it's, it's the growth which is from God. And the point is this, that the church is a living organism made up, a bunch of, made up of a bunch of different people with different gifts that are perfectly coordinated together for the growth of the whole body. And as each individual person grows, the entire church grows. Do you realize that you cannot grow apart from the local church, and the church can't grow apart from you. You need the church, and the church needs you. If you don't believe me, stop coming to church for six months or a year and see what happens to your spiritual growth. I guarantee you, you'll end up in places that you didn't want to be. You'll atrophy. You'll get weaker spiritually. Why? Because you need the body of Christ. That's how God designed it to work. And we need you here so that we all can be growing because you have something that this church apparently needs. If God brought you here, if he sovereignly brought you here, it's because you have something that this body of believers needs. And lastly here, can't help but want to emphasize that last word. I don't think it's a mistake or a coincidence that Paul ended with the word in love, from whom the whole body being fitted together, held together by whichever joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. He already said that we're to speak the truth in love. I'm glad he said in love then because sometimes we speak the truth and it's not very loving. Like, like we do drive-by confrontations, Right? Oh, there they are, take off, right? And leave the person dead on the side of the road or, you know, all bloody and beaten up on the side of the road. It's like, that's not how Galatians 6.1 was intended to go down. When you see a brother overtaking a fall, you are spiritual, go mow them down. No, restore them in the spirit of gentleness. Looking to yourself, lest you be dumb. So it's important that he added in love to the speaking in truth, speaking the truth part. Because there's any any time that you you need to demonstrate love, it's when you're speaking the truth, when you're confronting someone, you're admonishing someone, right? You need to make sure you're doing it in love and doing it in a loving way. But he just ends here that all of this, everything he's been talking about, should be done in love. Not just speaking the truth in love, but everything. 
Not just when you confront someone. Love is the circulatory system of the body. It's like the blood. How important is the, is the blood in your body right now? Ah, pretty important. How important is love coursing through the circulatory system, the veins of this church? How important is that? Extremely important. And so love should freely and, and spontaneously flow through every member of the body of Christ. We should sacrificially serve one another and sincerely strive to meet each other's needs. Paul said in Romans 12, 10, he said, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. John 13, verses 34 and 35, this should sound familiar from our study of the gospel of John. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. For by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, I expressed to you last week how all being here at one time in this one big room kind of threw me off a bit, and I was like, man, how am I going to love these people? How am I going to, how am I going to love them all? It's, it's hard to, 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 to figure that out, and, and so that's why, believe it or not, we have grow groups. We have small groups because as pastors and elders, we know that while God has called us to love the sheep, love the body, we realize that, you know what, to provide you that personal touch, that loving, caring touch, it's not humanly possible. And so we've divided you up into smaller flocks, if you will, and said, hey, let's get some other godly men, godly couples who can, who can kind of be our hands and feet, and they can love you, and you can learn to love each other and that's really what grow groups are all about, is learning to care about what's going on in one, one another's lives and, and, and loving on one another and looking forward to getting together with one another and, and missing each other when you're not there, right? That's where a lot of the love should be, should be going on. It's not so much here on Sunday mornings, which we hope that it's a very loving environment and there's a lot of love happening here, but the, the real deep life-on-life love is happening in our grow groups. And so I'm just going to say, if you're not feeling very loved, if you're not feeling the love, okay, let me say that, if you're not feeling the love here at Lakeside, it could be that you're not in a grow group. And if you're still in a, and if you are in a grow group and you're regularly attending that grow group and you're really vitally plugged into that grow group, then maybe you need to communicate that to your grow group leader that, hey, I'm not really feeling the love. I thought this is where I'm supposed to be getting loved, right? It could be that um, maybe you need to be a little more loving yourself, right? In order to experience love, you need to love. It's like in order to have a friend, you got to be a friend, right? So just examine that, analyze that. And if, hey, if we dropped the ball and we haven't loved you well, then please come let us know because we want to make that right. Uh, we don't want to just say, well, that's just your fault, you know? Um, because it may be some, we biffed it somehow, somewhere, and that's our heart. We don't want that to happen. We don't, we don't want anybody to slip through the cracks. We don't want anybody to not feel loved here or be loved here, and so that's why we have grow groups. If you remember uh, a couple weeks ago, I guess now it's maybe a month ago, I shared an expression, a little phrase that I thought should characterize uh, our lives um, as Christians, and it's simply this, love believes the best and covers the rest. Remember that? Love believes the best and covers the rest. 
based on 1 Corinthians 13, 7, love believes all things. 1 Peter 4, 8, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Love believes the best and covers the rest. Man, if we applied that to one another, wouldn't that be powerful? Wouldn't that be beautiful? That we just believe the best about one another? And, and, that, and then maybe there's reason for us to believe, yeah, it might be true. It, it covers it. Like, guess what? I'm not surprised, okay, don't be so surprised that you have a, a, a pastor who's a sinner. I'm not surprised that we have church members that are sinners. Why should you be surprised that you have a pastor who's a sinner, right? We should just not be surprised. Listen, there, there's a lot of things that we need to cover with love. I'm not saying sweep sin under the rug. You know that's not what I'm saying. We have to take into account all the, the rest of what the Scripture says about speaking the truth in love and, and restoring one another when they're in sin and all that kind of stuff. But, but in general, we probably could do a whole lot better job of just covering some stuff and just letting it go and not, not being easily offended and not, right? That's just growth, spiritual growth. Question, can you honestly say that you love the people that are sitting in this room? Do you, can you honestly say that you love, you love the people sitting around you this morning? I'll never forget, a, this is years ago, uh, a family left our church and it was really sad because we loved them and, and uh, we didn't think there was any biblical reason why they needed to leave and, and, and yet they left and we wished them well and gave them our blessing and I'll never forget one of our elders uh, said, you know what? They must have not really loved us as much as we loved them. Because it seemed way too easy for them just to cut and run. Right? Because if you really love someone, right, that is, that's just terrible to have to think about separating, right? And it's not something you just do whimsically and say, well, I guess we'll just move on, right? Seriously? You're not going to work at it? You're not going to try to resolve it? Now you're like, oh no, I can't leave the church. I'm locked in. I knew this was a cult. <laughs> That's not true. I'm just we're having an honest conversation this morning. Is this good? Come on. So how do you think we're doing? Okay, honestly, how, how do you think we're doing? Are, are we a healthy church or are we an unhealthy church? Okay, don't answer all at once, okay? Start throwing tomatoes and stuff. No. Uh, let, let, how about we give ourselves a spiritual checkup this morning? Can we do that just very quickly? Let, let, me just, let me just ask some questions, okay, based on this text to help us assess how healthy we are as a church. And maybe just close your Bible, put your notes away, okay, and just look up here and listen. Maybe even close your eyes and just listen and, 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 and honestly assess in your mind what comes to your mind first when you hear this question. Is it a resounding yes or is it a resounding no? Or is it a eh, 50-50? We could work on that, right? Here we go. Does our church have godly gifted men in leadership positions who are intentionally training up others to serve alongside them? Is God's word being accurately proclaimed and diligently applied in our lives? Are people in the process of discovering and using their spiritual gifts to serve the rest of the body? Is every member actively involved in some area of ministry? 
Are we experiencing greater unity and fewer divisions and learning to defer to one another as we study the scriptures together? Are people's lives changing so they're more and more like Christ? Are people becoming more spiritually mature? Are we growing in our understanding of God's word so that we can discern truth from error? Are we people of integrity who practice what we preach? Is there a mutual commitment to give and receive loving confrontation? Is everyone submitting to Christ's authority in their life and to the authority he's entrusted to the pastors and elders of our church? Is there a team spirit of cooperation where everyone does their part for the good of the whole? Is there genuine love and concern expressed towards one another in our church? The more we can answer yes to these questions, that's an indication, right, that we are a healthy church. And as I said last week, all healthy things naturally grow. It's just a matter of time. The first time we went over this text together as a church, believe it or not, Jacob was 21 months old. And I asked Kelly, I said, hey, at the end of the sermon, I want you to go get Jacob from the nursery, and I want you to bring him out here, I want you to bring him down front, and I, wanna, I want you to give him to me, I'm going to hold him up here. And, and so it was back at Haven's Landing, and I took Jacob in my arms, he was a, almost two years old, little rascal that he was, two years old, squirming in my arms and, 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 and wanting to get down and run around and play, and, and I said, hey guys, look at this little guy, this is us. This is us as a church. A little 21-month-old, 21-month-old, two-year-old, and, and, and guess what? We're acting a whole lot like he is right now. This is just what, what happens at a, at, a, at, a, at a young church. And um, I don't know if you've noticed lately, but Jacob's not a little boy anymore. Uh, we just recently took some family pictures, and, and Kel and I said, man, the, the one in our family who's changed the most is, is Jacob. He just doesn't look like a little boy anymore. He looks like a young man. And would you believe it that we didn't do anything but just feed him <laughs> and change him and, and, and teach him what the Bible says about how do you live your life? And, and, and guess what? He, he, he's, he's growing and maturing into a, a, a young man. And, and someday, if the Lord allows, he will develop into a grown man, a grown, mature man. And guess what? We're... We're, don't mean to embarrass you, bud, um, but take a look at Jacob sometime, even though that'll embarrass him, okay? We're, guess what? We're a teenager. We're in our teen years, if you will, as a church. We're about 15 years old, and guess what? Oftentimes with teenagers come challenges, come obstacles, and, and other things we all know about as parents, right? And so, hey, we, we may have obstacles, we may have challenges along the way, but by the grace of God, we'll make it through. And we'll continue to grow and we'll become more healthy and mature and ultimately like Christ. Would you pray for these things to be true of our church? And if there's areas where you think we may be weak, uh, where we're not as healthy as we could be, would you pray for us in that area? And would you ask the Lord how you might be a part of the solution? How you might be able to help us 
get better in those areas. Don't just criticize us and say we're not doing this or we're not good at this. Well, then, okay, fine, great. What are you going to do about it? How can you help us become more healthy as a church and more like Christ as a church? Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your word and how it just speaks so so, so truthfully, so honestly, so directly to our hearts. I pray that everything that has been said this morning has been said in love. Um, as I've sought to speak the truth, that, I've, that I, I pray I've done it in love. And we ask that you would be gracious to this body of believers that you uh, raised up for your glory and your honor. That you would continue to help grow us and develop us and mature us that we might be the most accurate, accurate reflection of Jesus Christ as possible. We pray this for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.